This is Kevin Pruitt with Sean Askinosi on another episode of Rising Tide Startup. Sean, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. So who is Sean Askinosi? Ooh, great question. Um, in fact, I actually think that that question is uh, um, one that we need to ask ourselves every day. Um, not who is Sean Askinosi, but who is me, you know? Yeah. But anyway, I'm the CEO founder of Askinosi Chocolate and uh, uh, started that chocolate factory about 11 years ago. We're bean-to-bar chocolate makers. And uh, before that, I was a criminal defense lawyer for 20 years. And uh, we are based in Springfield, Missouri, and a very small family business of 16 full-time employees and selling our chocolate around the U.S. And you're based, that's that's like on Commercial Street or in the Commercial Street District? Right. We are on, we are based on Commercial Street, and um, we own a few buildings here for our factory, our offices, and then our cocoa bean warehouse. Okay. So all operations are in, in Springfield? All the operations are here in Springfield. Uh, my daughter, Lauren, um, is our chief marketing officer, but she works for us remotely from Austin, Texas. Okay. All right. So... How does one transition from being a criminal defense attorney to making chocolate? The, oh, that's, a, the, that's a short, short question with a long answer probably. Yes. Well, the, the way uh, first is um, for me, I, and I like to try to describe this transition in a way that I hope other people will see themselves. Not that you have a bunch of criminal defense lawyers waiting to be chocolate makers out there <laughs> listening to you, but, but I know in your listening audience, you have people who are in job a thinking about, uh, what's next. And mm-hmm. so, um, for me, the way, the way the transition began was physically that I was no longer called to do the work that I was doing. I just, I, I could feel, I wasn't feeling good physically and um, I was just not feeling um, the work, which was criminal defense law, very serious criminal cases. Um, I, I guess I kind of built my reputation in the defense of murder cases. And um, that if you aren't called to that, it can really take its toll on mm. you physically, emotionally, spiritually, every way. But I was called to it until I wasn't. And so I just kind of felt it in my body. And I think that that's the first place of awareness, at least for me, that the transition needed to happen. So this wasn't one of those things where I'd been dreaming of chocolate my whole life and thought, oh, I think I'll, you know, find the right time in my criminal defense career to do that. No, this was one of those things where I loved it. I loved the courtroom. I loved everything about it. And then I could feel it when I stopped loving it. Mm. And so that that's the way the transition started for me, was just the feeling physically, then emotionally, and then spiritually, um, all those things. And then it was a five-year process to find the next thing. So during that period of time, did you continue to practice law for those five years? Or did or was there like a hiatus, a, like a, a stop? like a gap that said, okay, I'm no longer practicing law, but I haven't done the chocolate yet. So I've got two years to find myself or what, how would you describe that, that interim period or that transit that as Seth Godin would say that pivot? Yes. Uh, no, I continue to practice law every day. And, um, and it was one of those things that I, I knew I had to get out. I felt like I had a lot of opportunities in front of me and I think this is the way this is often the case with um, entrepreneurs is they're thinking, hey, I'm doing pretty good where I am right now. I feel good about my 
job. I feel good about my income and my level of success, but I can't do it anymore. Mm. And then is the paradox of choice that is uh, brought to you by Google Incorporated. Um, we now see, you know, just this dashboard literally and figuratively of opportunity that presents a paradox of choice. Um, then when we don't feel drawn to any of those things, or at least when I did not feel drawn, pulled um, toward those as an inspiration um, and new passion for me, then I became more desperate. So what I found is the more desperate that I became to find the next thing, uh, the further away from my reach it was. And that was hard. And so I went through a period of, like I said before, not feeling good. I felt tired. I felt fatigued. I felt depressed. I started taking antidepressants. Um, after my doctor said I should go see a psychologist, I started um, um, just looking at everything that I could. And so this was a, a very long five-year process of, of, of continuing to practice law and then finding this next thing. Well, you, before our interview, you had sent me a copy of a book that you had written. Uh, I guess you and Lauren had written together called Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul. Now, I don't know if you knew this or not, but um, maybe God in instructed you to send this to me because this this book really spoke to me. And I, as a matter of fact, um, those that are listening to the to the podcast, if you get on our website and you offer uh, feedback to through our feedback form, the first five that do that, I'm going to order this book and send it to them. So um, we, we want people to engage. And, and I just encourage you to go get the book. I'll have it in the show notes as well. But um, I love the idea, especially, I mean, I read the entire thing. So I'm going to ask you things wow. throughout the book. Okay. So you're the one. Um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's more. <clears throat> I love, though, the way you started about is it. And and I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this, so please forgive me. So you clarify, but something about finding joy in our deepest sorrow, just that you, whole idea. Yeah. So yes, no, you did not butcher it. You, you unpacked you captured that a it. Bit. Yeah, sure. Well, the I quote the philosopher poet Khalil Gibran, um, who said, "Our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked," and. I didn't know that at the time when I was going through this five-year process, but um, as I reflect back on it, um, I see that it that that sentiment that mm. we're talking about now is is um, in many ways a mysterious paradoxical key that unlocked meaningful work for me. So what I mean by that is that um, all of us. Uh, by our age, whatever it may be, all of us, almost all of us have experienced some kind of broken heart, mm. some kind of sorrow in our lives. And to those people who are saying, hmm, no, I really can't think of any sorrow or broken heart in my life, then I say, call me, we need to talk about much more complicated things in your life about why you haven't experienced a broken heart, because it's part of life. And um, so I, I'm saying what I'm saying is, that if we can begin to explore the sorrows in our life, in some cases, deep, deep sorrows, then it can be the place and the beginning point and the returning point of great joy in our lives. And the way that worked for me was when I was going through this five-year process of trying to figure out what's next, 
becoming more and more desperate, not finding anything, all the while, every day, uh, committing this search to a very simple prayer that went like this, Dear God, please give me something else to do. And I said it sometimes multiple times a day, and you know, and that it was just very simple. But what happened is my dad died when I was 14 years old mm-hmm. of lung cancer, and he was my hero and lawyer. He was a lawyer like me, and and um, back then um, there was a prayer group starting in our church, uh, the Episcopal Church, um, that was a charismatic uh, church, which is kind of weird, uh, charismatic Episcopal Church, and this prayer group would come over and lay hands on my dad and. They would talk in tongues, and it kind of freaked me out, and they would speak very loudly. This is the beginning in the early to mid-70s of prosperity theology in the United States yeah. in all churches. And so they told me, they laid hands and said, laid hands on him, would come over all hours of the day and night, and they would, in some cases, be loud, mm. and it scared me. And they were, in some cases, mean. Here's And here's an example. The leader of the prayer group told me to never speak with my father about death. He said, if you do that, then that will be a sign of doubt and Jesus won't heal him. So every time my dad tried to talk about death, I pushed him away and said, dad, we can't talk about this. And uh, the cancer spread throughout his body and it eventually went to his brain. And the night before, or the night he died, I was with him. He was at home and, and, uh, and uh, I've never been more desperate in my life. I prayed out loud to God that night uh, hysterically, please don't let him die. Please don't let him die. And, uh, he did die. And that, so fast forward the tape 25 years. And I decided to begin a conversation with that grief that I never really had had. And, um, so what I did is, um, and I talk about this in the book, but I started going to this place called Assumption Abbey, which is a monastery in the Mark Twain national forest Mm -hmm. about two hours from, from my house. And the reason I went there is because it's where my dad spent his last night before he came home. He was on a men's church retreat. So I decided to go there. Well, anyway, in one of my retreats there, I got this idea while I was walking to go volunteer um, at a local hospital um, with patients that are dying. So they let me volunteer for them in the palliative care department, which is end of life care. Uh And they gave me a list of patients and they said, okay, go visit these patients as a volunteer. Some were oncology, some um, cardiology and some neurology, but they were all in some state of dying. And most of them didn't have a relative or friend there. And so I would just go in and visit with them and talk with them um, just about whatever. And, And many of them were very lonely. And at the end of my visit, I always said, well, one of the things I do as a volunteer is pray for people. Would you like me to say a prayer for you? Well, 99% of people who are dying will take a prayer. Sure. Um, and so I said this. I said, what would you like me to pray for? And they would say, well, uh, would you pray that I live two more weeks to my 65th wedding anniversary? Or would you pray that I die today because I'm in pain and I'm ready to go? Or would you pray that I'm healed, uh, that I walk out of here? I prayed their exact prayer, their exact words. I didn't judge their words. Mm -hmm. So what's happening here? What's happening is I was doing the opposite of what happened to me as a child when I was in such sorrow, when the prayer group was, you know, just being mean about this healing business. And so what happened is I would ask the people before I prayed for them, I'd say, could I touch your hand or your shoulder while I pray for you? And they said, yes. And this is the key. 
And if your listeners just only listen to this and then turn it off, it's fine. This is what I want to relay. In those few seconds, literally measured in seconds, I thought about someone besides me. Mm. And I walked out of the hospital on many days, not all days. I did this for about, gosh, between maybe three or four years on Fridays. When I would walk out to my car, there were days that I felt like my feet weren't on the on the parking lot pavement, that they were three or four feet above the pavement, that there was such joy. How could that be? This is a morbid thing, some people would say. You know, you're with people who are dying. Well, it's because it was born out of my deep, deep sorrow. And so what Khalil Gibran is saying is, is that you know, the deeper the sorrow, the greater the joy. So I was almost like floating because I actually thought about someone besides me in the pain point of my life. And so this paradoxical thing happened. Gandhi says, if you want to find yourself, then lose your, or if you want to find yourself, lose yourself in the service of others. And Christ said practically the exact same thing. And so what that's what happened. That's the mystery. So it's not that the ends justify the means. It's that you serve someone, and that's what happened with me. And then there was just like this space to think about something else besides all of the noise in front of me about what I should do. That is how it happened. That's how it happened. Well, it's it's funny. You, you mentioned that, Abby. So beside my bed... Long before you sent me the book, long before we even connected, um, I have that a book about that abbey sitting on my nightstand. Wow. Um, I grew up in a little town called Mountain Grove, Missouri, which is about oh, like, yeah. 20 minutes from, from yep. where that abbey is. And yep. Amazing. I uh, have known about that since that abbey and, and those, those strange guys in the, in the furry suits, you know, <laughs> out there for, uh, for many, many years. But, uh, yeah, it's amazing how many, how many intersections that we're going to have on this, on this, uh, this, this short interview. But I, I really, and if, if, if our listeners have listened to other episodes, um, I have a pretty set list of questions that we try to go through. But this one, and we even talked before beforehand, uh, before we, I turned the recorder on, that that I really want to give you space, Sean, to share just the the depth of your story and and kind of the stages of that. So, because I really think it will speak to our listeners at at a very deep level. Um, we spent time as a family in the Middle East, so we understand. Um, in the Arab mindset, there's there's not this separation between the spiritual world and the natural world. It is completely intertwined. Khalil Gibran would have the same mindset, and so when when you when you I was reading through this book, it's almost like you have uh, as a Western, you also understand this the Eastern mindset that says. Uh, everything in life is connected and you can talk about the things that happened with your father. You can talk about how, you know, you've spent time at the Abbey. You spent time just in personal reflection. Nothing in God's economy is wasted. I mean, every experience is that you've had leading up to this is probably preparing you for whatever the next stage is. So, um, I want to, I don't want to hear myself talk. I want to give you more time to unpack this as, 
Um, I mean, I had a couple other things that I, I wanted to touch on in the book that are related specifically to your business. I mean, sure. uh, if you don't mind, I just want to mention no. a couple of quotes and, and kind of let you unpack those. But I love this, this uh, you know, this is the section where you're talking about how you want to run your company and how you want to, to be a CEO with a heart. Uh, you said, I hope to let the light of my dignity be a lamp for my fellow workers and shine collectively upon the work we decide to do together for good purposes. What a, what, I mean, is there a better mission statement in the world than what you well, just wrote there? Well, thanks for saying that. Um, I use the metaphor of light a lot. Um, and of course it's throughout the Bible. Um, and I love it because um, I believe that um, this idea of not asking too much of ourselves, but to sort of be uh, co-participants with the people we work with, the people that we do business with, the people in our neighborhood, um, as lights, then we have this chance to really make sustainable difference in the world. And um, I believe I believe that true, true sustainability comes from uh, this idea and the use of this metaphor that I'm talking about as a light. I also get it from my favorite uh, theologian that I quote in the book, uh, all over the book, Jean Vanier, who is a Catholic theologian. Um, and he also talks a lot about um, the, the he, he says, we're not um, a solution, we're a sign. And that's what I want to be. I want, I, I don't, I don't, claim to be a solution. What I say is, is it's a sign. So I want people to read the book or hear this podcast and think, um, oh, I don't need to duplicate this exactly, or this isn't some template. What it is, is it's a sign. It's a light. I see this light on over here. Hey, I can, I can be a light too. I can, I can create my version of a little light um, that will have uh, both an interior reflection and an exterior reflection. And I talk about this a lot. And what I mean by that is I think that business leaders owe it to themselves, to their families and their communities to have uh, a rich interior life. And that can take its shape however the person wants it to take shape. But I believe that if we cultivate our interior life, and for me what I mean by that is prayer, reading, meditation, um, all of these things. And uh, as I talk about in the book, uh, for me, a rule of life mm -hmm. um, based loosely on the rule of Benedict. But so if we can cultivate this interior life, then I think it gives us an opportunity to be more aware in our exterior life, in the external world of the needs around us, literally right around us in our family, uh, among our coworkers. Why is that? It's because it's a practice. The practice of cultivating our interior life then builds us for the opportunities to express, as you and I would say, the fruits of the Spirit. Mm. And so that's what I mean by this. And so when we see ourselves sort of rising up with greater compassion, I think it's often because we've done some things to cultivate our interior life. And um, I don't think it has to be a big deal. I think there are many small things that enrich their interior and exterior life. And so that's what I, that's what I mean by that. I also think that um, we have to 
stretch ourselves in terms of um, not not by way of just setting goals for ourselves, but we have to stretch um, and maybe do more than we think we're capable of when it comes to serving others in our business and in our business life. Um, but at the same time, I feel as though we could all use me included, especially me, um, to understand what it means to operate and lead with humility. And so that's also what I mean by that quote that you just read. And um, again, I believe that when we cultivate our interior life, uh, that it will lead to greater humility because we have an understanding of just exactly what it is that we don't know right. uh, about the world. Right. So that's, yeah. I, I love that you've un- unpacked that. And I, I, my next quote is, is actually this leading from that. And, and um, one, one quick segue I wanted to take is, is um, you know, s- social justice and social enterprise is, is a real hot button issue now. One thing I think that you and I would agree on is it's not enough just to do good things. There, there has to be, um, there has to be a recognition. I think in the person that is actually um, trying to provide that service that that it is also that you're open to receiving as well. And it's, I mean, you talk about that a little bit about a trip to Tanzania that we don't go to Tanzania to change Tanzania. We go to Tanzania to, so Tanzania can change us or yes. or something to that effect. And, yes, and I mean, I exactly. love that that uh, that whole idea. But what I want to do is touch real quick about your growth strategy. I mean, this, you're, you're really as Christ did 2000 years ago, you kind of, you're kind of flipped the whole thing upside down. You've really flipped this, this, um, the business ecosystem upside down, uh, with, because you have such, you've had a, a life change and you've had so much influence through, you know, your time at the, at the Abbey and other influences that, that have, you know, that you've encountered recently. But this, this says, how do we define growth? It says, we define growth more broadly than the traditional business world. A changed heart, interior peace, higher quality products, reduced debt, more efficient workflow, higher pay for staff, and the like will transform us little by little. And that's the kind of growth we hope never ceases. That's that's the kind of growth that's kind of hard to measure on a bottom line. Mm-hmm. It is hard to measure on a bottom line, um, and it, it's hard it's hard to measure in any way in a small business or in a large business. What I'm what I'm trying to um, ask people to consider the way in which we've been conditioned to believe in this country that we must grow um, at all cost and that we must be dependent on consumption in order to be perceived healthy Mm. as an economy, um, uh, to run our businesses. And so I ask in, in the book, in chapter three, how much is enough? How much is it? And I think as business people, we owe it to our businesses and ourselves to say, well, what, what exactly is that? Even top line sales, how much is enough? How much do we need? What is success? So many people say, well, I don't need to ask that question. I just need to grow by, you know, 20% a year or 15% a year top line. Well, that's a trap. And I think it's a trap from a macro standpoint economically in the United States by measuring our GDP um, around the world. And I think it's a trap for our businesses. And what I ask people to consider just because it's the model that I know, and that is uh, monasteries, Benedictine monasteries for 1500 years have 
man, been managed by the rule of Benedict all over the world by asking this exact question, how much is enough? Well, the answer is really simple. The amount that's enough is what is sufficient. Hmm. Oh, so you mean it's not just grow, grow, grow? No, it's what is sufficient. And honestly, that can be a more challenging question. It requires a lot of thought and analysis. That is, what is sufficient for me, or if, if I was running a monastery, which I'm not, but uh, in the monastery, they only brew enough beer for what they need. We see, you know, you, you read about this famous Trappist beer. They could brew a whole bunch more beer and make a whole lot more money, but they brew what they need for that year to be um, sufficient so they can have what they need. And so... For us, uh, lay people, you know, uh, living outside of a monastery, we can ask that question and we can say, well, what is sufficient and what does that mean to me as a business owner? Well, maybe I want to pay my folks more money. Maybe I'm a small business and I'd like to be able to give raises and offer benefits like for us. Knock on wood, we're just now offering health insurance for the first time. I'm super, super excited about it. And th- that that is an area of sufficiency for mm-hmm. us or uh, debt reduction, like we were saying. These things can be individually determined, but they, I think, um, I think they're hard questions to answer, but I think that we'll be the better for it by asking ourselves. And you and then the people, the thing that people say is, well, wait, don't you want just massive consumption of your chocolate bar that costs, you know, eight or nine or $10. No, I, I mean, I want people to buy my chocolate bars, of course, but I, I would, I want to be part of, um, of mindful consumption. And, and if that means that our growth is less than it would be, if there was not mindful consumption, then I'm proud to be part of it. That's what I, that's, that's the ecosystem in which I operate, and I right. I I want to be part of that. Well, I uh, I wanted to ask you. Um, I mean, I, I could this this interview could go on for all afternoon, and I know that you've got other things to do as well. But I I want to uh, as we're as we're kind of heading toward wrapping this up. Um, I know that you you've done very well with with your chocolate company. You've done you were very successful as an attorney before that, but. We all have, you know, obstacles and pain points that we face. So if you if you could identify one or two pain points that you face fairly often that, that maybe are, I mean, we have a broad variety of listeners. We have some that are, like I mentioned before, we have very early stage and we have some that are, you know, far down the road that, that have wealth and years of experience. So what would be one or two pain points that you would think that you could identify that Askinosi Chocolate faces, you know, fairly often? Sure. Well, uh, one pain point that we started with and that we continue to face, and so I've been doing this for 11 years uh, now, um, full time, and one of the pain points that we face is cash flow. Mm -hmm. And my wife is very debt averse, and we've been married for 31 years. She does not like debt. Uh, me, I love debt. I would, if you said, Hey, Sean, I'll loan you what's in my wallet. I'd be like, great, let's do it. (laughs) Um, not her. And thankfully, because she really has had a hand in, um, being really pretty strong in her opinion about this, we're a healthy company because of it. But, uh, because we don't have a big fat line of credit, we spend a lot of time, uh, managing cash flow. And there are times of the year, especially the third quarter in the summer, it just so happens that that ha- that's when I have to pay farmers often in advance for their crops of cocoa mm. beans. 
And it just, it's also when our sales are lowest for a chocolate factory, which our big sales are in the fourth quarter um, for the holidays. And so that remains a pain point for me. And, uh, and so we're, we're always, you know, trying to find ways to not only manage cash flow, but we also have really pretty, we've developed some pretty sophisticated tools to watch it and to plan for it the best we can. But Watching and planning are not the same thing as living and managing while it's happening. Absolutely. And so that is a definite pain point. I would say another pain point um, is we are, of course, feeling the effects of, um, of, of the increase in online sales in our, on our own website. And so we want people to buy off of our website, askinosi.com, and we and and it's it's grown for us over the years. But we don't sell on Amazon. We're not going to sell on Amazon, and uh, and we sell to about 900 stores around the country, uh, all over the country, uh, small specialty food stores in most cases, and uh, we are seeing you know that some of our our friends and colleagues that own those stores are having some, some, some of them are having challenging times. And that is a pain point for us because what it means is, is that, you know, some of our customers are going out of business and we who don't have a ton of capital to throw around are managing, we're managing our online um, sales. And that is a sort of transition that we've been experiencing and managing and leading over the last three plus years. And so if I had a million dollars to go spend on my website, then we, I wouldn't have said that as a pain point because yeah. I would already have everything all perfect and wrapped up, but it is a pain point. And you didn't ask for three, but I would say the third pain point is I talk a lot in the book about living a life of being inserted by doing. And it was one of the big challenges for me as a family brother at Assumption Abbey. It remains a challenge for me as a as an entrepreneur who's mm-hmm. motivated. I I want to you know do things, and some of those things include helping people. You know I want to feed kids. I want to pay our people more money. I want to profit share with farmers as I've done for eleven years. And I have to remember that one of the greatest callings on my life is to live a life of being inserted by doing and not a life of doing inserted by being. Mm. And that is, I would say, maybe the overarching pain point of my life. And the way I'm dealing with that is by, the first thing is number one, by being aware of it. Two, by naming it. You know, we're talking about it now, so I say it out loud. And recognize it as a challenge. And so it is not just a prayer of mine, but it's also something that I have to actively practice. And that includes saying no to some things. And my spiritual director at the Abbey, an 87 year old monk, Father Cyprian, um, helps me with that, you know, and he's been a monk for since 1952. And you'd think, well, what would he know about business advice? But he does. And he knows how to tell me. He knows how to tell me that I, I, I'm, I'm exhibiting signs of instability, you know, and that I need to be careful. I need to pull things back because of my commitment uh, to a life of being. So those are some pain points. So, 
really quickly on this one, how do you, how does your staff react when you come back from retreats? Um, you know, they, they he's got so some crazy ideas it. again. Here he, he comes has, again. <laughs> well, you know what? Now they know I don't come back from retreats with ideas. Um, I don't come back from my time at the Abbey with, with, with ideas. And I, I, I've over the 17 years that I've been going to the Abbey and now for the last four as a family brother, I've taught myself to not, uh, to not want to come back with ideas. I don't want to go there with the intention of finding answers. I want to go there with the intention of resting in God's presence. Mm. And uh, if, well, I, I may not even pay attention to it because I've, I, I have had insight. I mean, I, I told you I had that insight years and years ago at the Abbey about mm-hmm. going to visit patients who were dying. So I've experienced insight and yes, ideas, but it's, so they know that my staff, you know, they know when I come back that maybe I'll be rested or maybe I won't, you know, there are times when I go to the Abbey and it isn't, it isn't restful at all. You know, I've, have had trouble sleeping or maybe I've been wrestling with some issue with God about something in my life and they know the people my staff know that I will pray for them and while I'm there and um, they've experienced me doing this for so long now they kind of know that I'm not going to come back and you know have 50 new things for them to do and <laughs> and uh, um, and I would I think that would be that would be uh, almost inappropriate for me to even do that to them. Well, I also think that there's probably a trust factor over the years that they think, you know what, this is good for him to go and spend time. It's And what's good for him is good for us. You know? Yes, yes. And I I have had uh, some, some other people uh, from my work have taken their own retreat there and uh, which I've never encouraged anybody to do, but if they, they know I do it, and so I'm glad to see that some of them have benefited from it. Um, and Or I encourage people to take retreats other places. It doesn't have to be at Assumption Abbey. I just happen to you know, have uh, deep um, connections there. Sure. Uh, but I think that we could all, you know, we can all uh, benefit from what the monks call a time apart. Yep. You know, yeah. I'm sure you know what I'm. Yeah, absolutely. I know absolutely. I, we spent uh, we spent nine years in England, and there are there are a lot more Anglican retreat centers than there are Catholic retreat centers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember one day that I just took away and and went to this little cabin on the backside of their property, and I mean it was me, a fireplace, and a notebook. And oh man! It was a it was an incredible day to just really sit. But what was really interesting is it took almost half the day to turn my mind off. Well, good for you. It I takes mean, me just... forty eight hours. <laughs> well, <laughs> at least at least I journaled it. It took me half a day. Maybe maybe it was still spinning. Maybe I didn't realize what I was doing. But that's that's cool. Well, Sean, as we as we wrap this up. Um, I'm going to ask you how we can, you know, how people can find you. Uh, is it askinosychocolate.com? Just askinosy.com. Askinosy.com. Yep. Okay, those will be mm-hmm. in the show notes. But if you don't mind, if you'll if you'll just close this out, imagine that you're speaking to me as someone just getting started in business. What would be just the sage advice that you wish you would have known 11 years ago? Um, 
as as the wise entrepreneur that's further down the road than most of us, how what would you say to us that and it's just a good way to close us out today? Sure. The the first thing I would say is uh, trust advisors have given you good financial and accounting advice. It sounds kind of boring for me to say that, but I see so many entrepreneurs who don't either understand themselves or have advisors that understand um, the practicalities of managing a business in today's world uh, from a very reasonable and achievable standpoint. So make sure if you've got a great idea uh, that you've pressure tested it with people who know what they're talking about. Um, and it's, it's so important. The second thing I would say is I encounter entrepreneurs all the time starting out who say, man, I really love what you're doing. That's cool that you're doing these things with farmers and kids in your neighborhood. We're going to do that too. We plan on doing that. We're just going to get a little bit more profitable and, you know, a few more employees before we start. And I say to them, I look them right in the eye and I say, don't wait. Mm. Do not wait. Look at us. I mean, we're 16 people. We're feeding almost 1,000 kids a day. We profit share with farmers in, in four different countries. And and um, I encourage people, don't wait. This isn't – what I'm talking about is not the Department of Philanthropy or the Department <laughs> of Charity at your company. It's you. It's, it's who you, you are. Yeah. 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 It's you and your partners. And just start small, but don't wait. Why? Because there's like there's a conspiracy of the universe to help you do this. It all you just have to take a step. Don't plan it. Don't overanalyze it. Just do it. Roll up your sleeves and start serving someone who needs you right now. Wow. Wow. So it the the internet cut out just a tiny bit on the very first one. Uh, sound financial advice is that. Can you just unpack yes. that? Yes, I think that it's important for people to either themselves understand or have trusted advisors who understand um, if this business is really viable from a right. financial standpoint. Is it? Does it have reasonable and achievable parameters? Can it be pressure tested? And is it is it something that you can really count on to eventually reach some level of profitability and look at it from a bunch of different angles. It sounds kind of boring because people are like, oh, I've got this great idea and nobody else is doing it well. Okay, but have have a look at it um, or have a friend uh, or more, more than one friend look at it who really understands the numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, I, I, I think that's really, really critical. And I, I wish more people would, would do that. Yeah. Well, Sean, thank you so much for your time today. Is there any last thing that I have not asked you about that you would like to add that you think would be beneficial to our listeners? Not that I can think of other than, you know, I have a little blog there where I write about these things. I don't just cut and paste from the book and it's seanaskinosi.com. And I try to write about all of these things that you and I have been talking about today and, and then some and, and uh, just to, and I put my email out there on my blog and, and entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs at heart to contact me with questions or thoughts and happy to help in any way I can. Well, Sean, thank you so much for your time today. It's It's been a true pleasure to talk to you. And, and uh, as I mentioned off camera, I so said we've known of each other for, or I've known of you for a number of years, but just, just a, it's a pleasure to actually put a face with a name and, and just have a connection there and, and just have so many shared experiences. But 
this has been a true pleasure, and, and I know our listeners are going to benefit greatly from the, the time that you've taken to spend today. And listeners, it's your chance now. It's uh, You've got two responsibilities. You've got one to listen to the pain points and add feedback. But even more important than that, you have a responsibility to listen to what the, the to the wisdom that Sean has shared and to put that into practice. Because if we do, all boats rise in a rising tide. Sean, thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.